As we come now before the very word of God, uh, turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read with me to the book of Matthew in chapter 2. We'll read here in a moment in the, the beginning verses of Matthew chapter 2. And as you turn there before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, we know that you are the one who stretches out the heavens and commands the very sun, that your power is without limit. So, Lord, would it please you now by the power of your word? to show us more of yourself. Press these things upon our heart as we hear them to help us to know you, to believe you, and to worship you for all that you are. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take up this morning Uh, these first 12 verses here in Matthew chapter 2. So this is Matthew chapter 2. We'll begin here in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. Now... This text here with the wise men may come to us as a surprise this morning for a couple of reasons. One, because I understand the guest preacher who was here while I was away preached from this exact same text last time. And two, because today is, well, January and Christmas is long over and gone. We just put most of our Christmas 
things away except our tree. I just can't bear to take it down just yet. Let me say just a couple of things in response to those before we unpack these verses. First of all, even though I am looking at the same verses that we've just looked at a couple of weeks ago, we're going to focus on a different aspect in these things. There is so much in just this one scene that I could preach probably a dozen sermons on this and not repeat myself. So if you're worried this is going to be the exact same, don't worry, it won't be. But more importantly, even though Christmas is over, the Christmas day is over, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that we have to celebrate the holiday that we call Christmas. It's fine that we do, of course, but we have freedom as far as when we do, how we do it, how long we do it. We're not locked into a particular holiday approach. So in the unfolding of church history long before us, it was traditional that the season begins on the day of Christmas and extends after into the days and weeks after that. So that's where we get these seasonal words like Yule Tide, Christmas Tide, and Epiphany Tide, which is technically the season that we're in now. We won't talk about those things, but this tidal approach to the holiday season means that we live in the wake of the event. That is, the event comes first, then we live in light of it. That is, Christ has come. This Savior of sinners, this light of the world, this very God with us, that God's promise is fulfilled, and this is now to change our lives. So, a few weeks ago, we were in Advent in the weeks before Christmas, and that brought us to the end of Matthew chapter 1, and I just thought that now that we're in the tidal season, we would just keep reading, you know? Why not? It's a good approach to the Bible anyway. We don't necessarily want to hop around the Bible, you know, a little verse here, a little verse there. That's fine sometimes, but generally the best approach to the Bible is just keep reading. It helps us that way to keep the bigger picture in mind. We know that the Bible contains all sorts of writings. There's laws and histories and apocalypses and there's proverbs and songs and prophecies and all of these things, even though they're different, are converging in one big coherent story of God, of God's glory, and of God's rescue of a wayward people. So keeping this bigger picture in mind, now we're here in this scene. And a lot happens in just this one chapter of Matthew alone. We haven't even gotten to the bulk of the events. The coming of the wise men here triggers a chain of events that involves a clash of kings, a series of ominous dreams, a refugee family, and a mass murder. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll take up those things in later weeks. Today, in this scene with the wise men, this whole episode begins with a star. Begins with a star. These men call it his star, that is, 
Christ's star. So the main question for us today is, what is happening with this star of Bethlehem? To help us understand this star in particular, we need to take a broader look about at, at what the Bible says about stars in general. So when you look up at the sky at night, and you see this, if the other lights are turned down, you see this glittering canvas. Have you ever wondered why they're there? Like God, why did God make it this way? What did he have in mind for the stars? So we're going to attempt to gather just a few pieces of a, a theology of stars that will guide us now. Three things that I'll say in this theology of stars. The first is that stars are assigned by God. Stars are assigned by God. We already said this earlier in uh, our call to worship, if you were paying attention. But at the end of the Psalms, in Psalms chapter 47, we hear these words. Uh, verse 4, He, that is the Lord, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So it's not as if God just scooped up a handful of stardust and just like, you know, chucked it out there, scattered it like a bunch of confetti or, or like rice at a wedding. It's that the Lord determines, decides the individual number of these things. He even gives them each a name. We're told in the rest of the scripture that not one of them is missing, that the moon and the stars he has set in their place. So if the sky were like a cake and the stars were the decoration on the cake, God's not like a kid or not just kids, I guess I do it this way, who decorate a cake by just kind of like big knife and you just kind of smear frosting, you know, cover it up with your hand with the, you know, the gaps. And, and if you decorate it, maybe sprinkles and you just kind of shake it like that. God is a master baker. That is, he's piping these delicate, intricate loops of icing with precision. He's putting every single sugar crystal and pearl exactly where he wants it. The stars are assigned by God. That's the first piece. Here's the second piece of our theology of stars. The stars are designed by God. Not just assigned, they're designed by God. Stars are pretty, at least I think so. I think most people think so. They're beautiful to look at, but they are more than just pretty. God did not just make them to be looked at and enjoyed. He created them with a particular purpose. They're designed to do something. So what are they designed to do? Well, if we look back in the early chapters of Genesis, we get a word on this. We have to be careful about Genesis 1, of course. It's not a, it's not a science textbook. It doesn't tell us the process he used in creating stars or almost anything else. But it does tell us his purpose because the stars were made in day 4. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 
verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So we hear in this some of the purpose for the stars. The most obvious design of their purpose is, of course, for for light. The sun's called the greater light here to light up the day. And the moon, the lesser light, and the stars are to light the night. We are so used to light on demand. At least I am. We have batteries. We have electricity. I can create light with a little boop. (laughs) You know, but, but can you imagine the days before all of that? If there was no electricity and no batteries, if there were also no moon and stars. You know, nighttime, if that were the case, would be be truly unsettling, dangerous even, to be in utter darkness. So part of the purpose of the stars and the moon is is for, for light, but there's another major purpose in here aside from just the light. They're described here as signs. Did you catch that word? They're to be for signs. That is, signs markers, specifically of seasons and days and years. So we know different cultures assign different numbers to their calendars. We just went through a, a new year, but you know, and other cultures assign a different date for their new year. It's a little bit arbitrary. Those, the, those actual numbers can change. But the thing that, that puts us really all on the same page, no matter where we are on the globe, is that everyone on Earth, and even throughout history on the Earth, we all share the same sun, moon, and stars. And these things signal the cycles of days and of years. Because they're measured by lights in the sky that are put there by God. So even the, the earliest books of the Bible, so in Job, if you were to read through, you'd notice this every so often. We hear mention of groupings of stars, something like constellations. There's a mention of the bear, which we, I think, call the Big Dipper. Uh, There's mention of Orion and Pleiades and Maseroth, which I'm not sure exactly which one Maseroth is. However we might group the stars, whatever whatever name we might call them, those things, of course, can change. But, But what is constant is where the stars are, their place, and also their movement in place across the night sky. So as they move, they help us see where we are in time and in place. They are signs to navigate the natural world that is part of God's God-given design for the stars. That's the second component. Here's the third and final piece of our theology of stars. Stars are indecipherable. I worked hard to find the right word for this. It's the best I could do. Stars are indecipherable. Good luck spelling it. It's long. I know. By this, here's what I mean. Not that stars are unreadable in any way, right? 
I just said stars are red in many ways. There's many natural things that the stars in the sky are meant to predict. So we can see a lot of times from the sky if, if winter is coming, say, if a storm is coming. That's why we have meteorologists imperfect as some of the predictions are, that study these patterns of weather. That's why we have astronomers and NASA folks who study patterns in outer, spa outer space. That's all good, good stuff. That's not what I mean by indecipherable. Indecipherable means there is no cipher. That is, there is no code etched in the stars. There's nothing to unravel for us to try to decipher, to divine the future that is not part of their created purpose. In fact, not just not part of their purpose, trying to divine or interpret the future from the stars is sin in the scripture. There's a whole category of similar things lumped together in Deuteronomy that, that God calls an abomination to himself. So things like fortune-telling, sorcery, divination, contacting the dead, mediums, interpreting omens. Today we could even include various readings like reading of palms, reading of tea leaves, reading of tarot cards. And with that is also astrology, not astronomy of the stars, astrology, the zodiac. People who were born under various signs of you know, Leo or Capricorn or Sagittarius or what have, what have you. That is not just harmless fun. That is not just silly insight printed in the newspaper. To follow those things is serious sin against God. The stars are indecipherable. There is no code in them to read. So there's our general theology of stars. They are assigned by God, designed by God, and indecipherable now. Let's plug all of that into some particulars. So just like we have today, there were people in the ancient world who made a career out of deciphering the stars. They specialized in interpreting the future through signs, even though that was forbidden by God as sin. And we won't read this today, maybe in a future week, I suppose, but we can look at various instances of this in the book of Daniel. But there were many times in, in those scenes where there were, uh, there were attempts to uh, decipher the stars. They were unsuccessful, but they tried to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream through these things. And in that context, the specialists who were called in to interpret were called various things. The specialists were sometimes called magicians or astrologers, or here's the important one, wise men. Wise men. That's their job. Wise men does not mean smart guys. I know, they need to rename that somehow. That's what it sounds like to me. Wise men are professional fortune tellers. That is, they try to tap into, to be in touch with the gods through various means, often through deciphering the stars. 
That's who we meet here. So around the birth of Jesus, Christmas time, Christmas tide, we often sing about we three kings. You notice, we just read it, nothing in this text in Matthew or anywhere else in the Bible says that these guys are kings. They're not kings, they're called in English wise men, or you might be familiar with their Greek, their Greek name, the Magi. Magi, by the way, is where we get our English words for mage and magician. You know, they're not the kind of magician that pull, pull rabbits out of hats with a wand. You know, they're, they're not just illusionists, nor are they just rich guys riding around on camels. The Magi were most likely pagan priests, dividers of the sky and practice of the occult. So here are these occult magi bowing before Jesus. How did they get here? There are lots of unknown details here that Matthew does not concern himself or us with. So I'll do my best to just stick with what we're given. I don't want to venture us off into the weeds, but... It matters how they got here. The Magi, at the beginning of this, are off in some distant land. The text just says they're from the east. You know, the song says we're from Orient are, and Orient's kind of an, an outdated word that gives us the impression that they were Asian somehow. Uh, but that's just, Orient is an old Latin word that just means east. So from the east somewhere, we don't know, maybe Persia, maybe Syria, maybe somewhere else, wherever they're at, they're, they're, they're going about their normal business. That is, they're just doing their job to divide and divine the stars day after day. And one night, something catches their attention. A star. We don't know exactly why. Perhaps uh, it was brighter than the other stars. Perhaps it was out of place. I mean, these guys mapped the stars with elaborate charts for a living, so they would have known. For some reason, there's a star there that catches their attention. And somehow, again, we're not told how, they determine this star belongs to the king of the Jews. They call it his star. So they head off to Jerusalem to find this new Jewish king. It does not say, by the way, that they followed the star to Jerusalem. You know, in the, in the Christmas programs, there's usually the little kid who has the stick who walks around with the star and it's like hanging off at the end. And, and, and they follow it around just like that. It doesn't say that, at least not at this part. It's not like the star is not a you know, GPS unit that says, you know, turn left at the light. Uh, the, the star just says somehow that it was a Jewish king. So Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, that would be the logical place to find this new king of the Jews. So, so they go to Jerusalem, but the, but the king's not there. They have to ask, where's this new king? So Herod and, and the priests, they come out and they say, the king, this king, I suppose, that you're talking about is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They learn that, by the way, not from the star, uh, but from, an, uh, from the old words of the prophet Micah. So ultimately, God's word is their guide, not, not just this star. But equipped now, they're sent off to, to Bethlehem. Hey, I, I suppose you mean Bethlehem. They now head south from Jerusalem, five miles toward, toward Bethlehem. 
And somewhere in that journey, the star does become their guide. Uh, we don't know the details about this as, as well, but in verse 9 it says, the star went before them, and it rested over the place where the child was. It seems to appear, maybe reappear, and the star is moving, moved. We don't, we don't know exactly the details about how all this happened. I don't know. Surely the star didn't, you know, descend directly over the house and hover like a little UFO. It's not just called a light. It's called a star. These guys are star experts. They know the difference between a star and a glowing light that's hovering. So they know it's way up in the sky. The process of how it directed their way, I don't understand. I don't really know. We just have to accept and trust what God has given here. But the exact placement of the star isn't the biggest question about this whole scene. The biggest question about this whole scene, at least to me, is this. Why would God choose to use a star in this way at all? Why would God choose to use a star in this way? I mean, everyone else, without exception, everyone else in the nativity scene are all there because they got a personal visit from the angels. Mary, Joseph, shepherds, all of them were told with a mouth about the name of Jesus, different than a star. And even if, if, if the Lord didn't want to use angels, he could have used dreams. He uses dreams a good number in, in this chapter, which we'll get to uh, in later weeks, I hope. This is not even God's typical design for the stars, right? They're, they're for signs of seasons and years and those sorts of things, and, and for light. He's never used a star in Scripture before or after like this at all. It's not even like this Bethlehem star was this bright flashing beacon for everyone to see. It wasn't like a series of airplane running lights. Whoop, whoop, here's the child Jesus. It's not bringing in masses of folks who are all flocking in to see Jesus. The only ones that seem to recognize anything about this star at all are these small handful of Eastern professional astrologists who scrutinize the sky for a living, whose work is paradoxically an abomination to God. And yet here are these magi who are deeply anti-God in their pagan divination of the stars, now guided by God to meet the very Son of God, the Lord does this not just in spite of their pagan practice, but through it, through their pagan practice. So from all I can tell, God uses the Magi's own, the Magi's own sin to bring them to the Savior of sinners. How wild is that? What are we to make of this? Lots of things that are foreign to us. We know them from Christmas stories. What are we to make of this? I don't know the heart of the Magi. 
We're told that they worshiped, that is, that they bowed in honor to Jesus with joy. I hope that means that they came to love and trust him, not just as king, but also as God. The reality is we don't know, but for all that we don't know about the Magi, we do know at least this is true for every Christian. This is true for every Christian, that for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, God works all things together for good. That's straight out of Romans chapter 8, if you want to check my work. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, God works all things together for good. All things. That means all of your pain is working together for your good. All of your troubles, all of your trials, that is working together for your good. This even includes all of your sin, your failures, your rebellions, your abominations. He works together for your good. That is not meant to make us make light of our sin or shrug it off. Sin is evil that we need to turn from and not be complacent in. We're not meant to, you know, mimic the practice of the Magi. Hey, they read the stars, we should too. But it is meant to make us make much of God, to make much of his grace, his mercy. Some of us, maybe all of us, may wonder at various points, what if I, what if I enter into such and such a sin? You know, what if I have in the past? What if I do in the future? What if, what if I am now? What if I make this sin sort of a regular practice, a, a habit that I can't shake? Maybe it's even part of my life's work, even some of my identity. This is who I am. It's woven into me. What then? The scripture calls us to put sin to death by the Spirit's power, but we also need to know this. The Lord has the power to transform us through our very sins. He is that strong to make these abominations of God into adorations of God. We're then to see this star of Bethlehem as a sign, as a marker, not just of wonder and of guidance, but a sign of God's grace to bring sinners to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that your, your ways are high. There is mystery in this that is beyond us, but we do know that the grace of Jesus is sure and unshakable. Would you humble us by these things that we might see the light of your glory? Thank you for being a lover of sinners to bring us to you. Would you press these things now upon us, we pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen.